I've never actually done this, but I've heard of introducers who, while they were introducing the speaker, drank the water. <laughs> There's unfortunately no glass here, though there soon will be, so I cannot do that on this occasion. Thank you very much. Whoops, whoops. Okay, it's, we are surrounded by technology here, but it's this one. Okay, is that better? Okay, you missed nothing. Welcome to a joint lecture co-sponsored by the University of Virginia Library Associates and by Rare Book School, which is in session this week. It's a pleasure to see you all here. Our lecturer this evening is Margaret Beck Pritchard, who many of you have already met, who is curator of prints, maps, and wallpaper at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Her talk tonight, Degrees of Latitude, Mapping Colonial America. It's a great pleasure to welcome her to the University of Virginia. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. You all just had the opportunity to see some wonderful things, and most of those things that you've seen tonight I'm going to talk about. So um, we can have the lights. Um, and I'm going to start out with something particularly appropriate since it's rare book school. It's a cartoon. Lucy calls Marcy on the telephone. Hey, Marcy, how about this book we're supposed to be reading? Have you looked at it? It has a preface, a foreword, an introduction, notes and bibliography, an index, and a bunch of maps. Are they out of their minds? Is that focused? Could you see if you can focus this a little better? Thanks. Um, actually, this cartoon is very appropriate for me because, as you heard, I'm the curator of prints, maps, and wallpaper, and so maps are just sort of a sideline. And when they told me that I had to write a book on maps, I said, are you crazy? <laughs> but for the past few years, my life has been... Is that good? Thank you. For the past few years, my life has been consumed by maps, and everywhere I'd go, I'd go to a party or see somebody I hadn't seen for a long time, and they'd say, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm writing a book about 17th and 18th century maps. And they'd go, why are you interested in maps? And, you know, this happened a lot. And nobody ever questioned my interest in wallpaper or botanical prints or anything. <laughs> but I, I really wondered about that. Why is it that people thought it was so curious that I was interested in maps? And after thinking about it, I realized a lot of people find them intimidating and they are intellectually challenging. But I realized that there is still a little bit of a gender bias where maps are concerned. And actually, you began to see that in the 17th century. Um, this is understandable. Maps were important to explorers to help guide them across oceans and continents. And let's face it, those explorers were men. Maps were used to claim, man, uh, claim land and promote business and trade, and men did all of that. As a result, maps became important symbols of, man, of power and control for men. Newspaper ads suggest that maps were considered elite male objects. Peter Griffin, who was a London map and print seller, advertised that he would furnish gentlemen's halls or large rooms with maps on rollers. 
And this practice was fashionable in the colonies too. In um, 1737, Edward Mosley's map of North Carolina was advertised in the Virginia Gazette, and it was described as not only useful, but ornamental for gentlemen's halls, parlors, or staircases. Well, for 17th and 18th century gentlemen, maps represented much more than pieces of paper showing how to sail from one place to another or roads connecting various settlements. Men consciously chose maps to hang on their walls as reflections of their interests. And as important as maps were for documenting new discoveries and for promoting settlement in the new world, they embodied an intellectual aura that was easily recognized and which distinguished enlightened gentlemen from those less well-educated. Artists used illustrations of maps as symbolic props and paintings and prints to represent power and authority. And here is a portrait of Arthur Dobbs, who was appointed governor of North Carolina in 1753. Now, look how he chose to be portrayed. Dobbs had his portrait painted in England before he ever set foot in America. But his position as governor of North Carolina is clearly very important to him. Not only is he identified as the governor in the bottom of the print, but more importantly, he chose to be viewed with a map of North Carolina. The placement of that map, firmly in his hand, represented far more than merely his position as governor. Maps symbolized power and intellect, and Governor Arthur Dobbs saw himself as clearly grasping both. John Custis IV, who you see on the screen, lived on the eastern shore of Virginia, and he also had a house in Williamsburg. In 1698, he was in London, preparing to return to Virginia. And before he did, he did what most all colonists did before they came back to America. And he purchased a number of goods that would have been difficult for him to acquire once he got back to Virginia. One of the things that we know for certain that he bought was this atlas. Now, this is what is known as an atlas factice or composite atlas. That means that this is a unique collection of maps selected and bound to meet his specific needs rather than being a published work with a, a standard selection of contents. Custis's book label was pasted to the front flyleaf. And above the label is an inscription noting that Custis paid six pounds, 15 shillings for the atlas. Well, to put that into perspective, if you compare that value to the value other, of other household furnishings at the time, this atlas was the equivalent of one, uh, an entire bedstead with all of the textile hangings, the curtains, and the mattress, and everything, or 20 mahogany chairs. So, the, but, but what's really important about this book is that the conscious selection of maps that Custis personally chose for his atlas provides us with insights into the tastes, ideas, and aspirations of an important colonial Virginian, and it identifies him as a man of intelligence and means who possessed a global worldview. Well, maps, charts, atlases, and globes were considered important symbols for enlightened gentlemen, but this is a world from which women were almost totally excluded. In this painting, the famous geographer Jedediah Morse is seen explaining aspects of geographical theory to his family. Now, everyone appears to be listening very intently, including his wife Elizabeth, but 
I know you may think this is a little crazy, but the artist has placed her sewing equipment, the tools of her trade, so to speak, between her and the globe. And he's essentially using her sewing tools as a subtle device to set her intellectually apart from the geographical discussion. And I know you think that might be a little much, but look at this painting. 17th um, and 18th century prints and paintings that illustrate women often portray a very negative implication. Here's a painting you all are all familiar with, Johannes Vermeer's Officer and a Laughing Girl. Well, what a beautiful interior with William Blau's map of Holland and West Friesland in the background. But that map isn't there as a pretty prop. Look at the painting. The military officer's back is to the viewer, to those looking on, suggesting his attempt to be discreet about this meeting. Well, why would he want to be discreet? It's because the woman he's talking to is a prostitute. The map in the background represents the worldliness of the woman. Just a year before Vermeer painted this scene, he painted a similar one, and he actually titled that The Procurus. A female philosopher in ecstasy over solving a problem pokes fun at a woman in rapture over using a globe to solve a, math a mathematical problem. And um, another example is this detail from a print by William Hogarth to illustrate the fact that harlots were setting fire to the world, he illustrated a prostitute holding a candle to a map. Well, by now you're probably asking yourselves what all this has to do with mapping colonial America, and I'll tell you why. We all know that maps were important because they tell us what was known or believed about the land, they're vital tools for travel and trade, and they recorded the routes taken across oceans and continents. But they provided much more. And if you're getting sleepy by this point and you're thinking about the wine later, you've got to listen to this one thing because it's the most important thing I'm going to say. And that is that in order to really appreciate these objects, it's important to understand the concept that maps were used as powerful visual symbols during the 17th and 18th centuries and not only could we get a sense of that by seeing how they were used in prints and paintings of the period, but the individual maps themselves provided a useful device for map makers and colonial expansionists to convey a host of attitudes and values. And if you understand this important symbolic niche that maps represented, then you'll have a much better understanding of the story that they tell. So let me start by showing you Two maps made by Captain John Smith. This is one you all saw just a minute ago in um, the, special, the special collections room. Well, Smith first came to Virginia in 1607 with Captain Christopher Newport to plant, as we all know, what would become the first permanent English settlement. Well, while Smith was here, he devoted most of his time to exploring the Chesapeake Bay in a three-month period, on an open barge with about 14 men, Smith covered over 3,000 miles of the tributaries of the Chesapeake Bay. And the natives supplied Smith with a lot of information on the geography, and he meticulously acknowledged their presence in Virginia by locating 166 of their villages by name on his map. In the left corner of the map, um, is, he um, illustrated it with an inset showing Palatan and his warriors. 
And in the right is a Susquehanna Indian. And the detail that Smith went to in describing the native population was impressive, down to a lengthy discussion of the clothes that they wore. Um, and I'm talking about the Susquehanna tribe here. And he wrote that they draped their bear skins around their shoulders so that the claws ended up at their elbows like epaulets. And they wore these wolf's heads as ornaments around their necks. And here is actually one of those wolf's head necklaces that survives in a collection in Sweden um, from the 1640s or 50s. Well, comparing Smith's map of Virginia to the one he made of the New England coast during his second trip to America seven years later is interesting because it represents a distinct shift in attitude. You can tell a lot about what motivated map makers um, by the decorative features they used and by the specific information that they chose to either include or omit. Well, the focus of the New England map was not so much for exploration like the Virginia map, but much more for commercial interests. Unlike the Chesapeake, where Smith located 166 Indian villages, there's not one Native American site apparent on this map. You think Native Americans didn't even live in New England. Well, not only did he not include the Indian names, he created new ones that were immediately recognizable to Englishmen such as Plymouth, Oxford, London, the River Charles, and Cape James. And also keep in mind when looking at these two maps together that on the New England map, there are no visual images of the native population like the ones that dominated the Virginia map. On the second map, he substituted an impressively large portrait of himself. Well, before William Penn's colonists could form their own impressions of the Pennsylvania landscape, English map makers attempted to mold their vision of the new colony. A map of some of the south and east bounds of Pennsylvania was published in 1681, and this was created as a promotional piece to make Pennsylvania attractive to potential settlers. The map is decorative and instructive, providing the names of towns and the courses of rivers and the seats of previously um, settled landowners. And several copies of this map survive with an attachment at the bottom that contains text documenting Penn's title to the land, a description of the environment, and an idea of what these settlers could expect during the first year after arriving in the colony. Well, the motivations behind publishing the map were suggested in the attached text. The map makers attempted to correct the errors of those maps that have been taken in any part of this country. Well, substantiating ownership by illustrating boundary lines on a map was one way to impose a sense of order over the land. Defining these limits established parameters and asserted a sense of political reality. The most powerful messages, however, were delivered through the nature of the decoration and the selection of topographical details. Most of the, quote, uninhabited portion of the map was truly unknown to the map makers and was depicted as unsettled wilderness, lacking any place names. But to fill the void, ten varieties of trees, such as oak, pine, and fir, were studded through the landscape. Well, figures of flora and fauna had been used on maps to illustrate unknown or, or unsettled t territories for years, but the manner 
in which these trees were represented on this map is pretty unique. Rather than being merely added enhancement, these trees dominate the map in such a manner that the geography is almost secondary. Well, but think about trees. Trees were important in assigning human order to the landscape. Surveyors often used them as boundary markers. Twelve oaks, one, Henry, uh, one hickory, and one maple were used to describe the perimeter of the bounds of the Liberty Lands just outside of Philadelphia in 1703. Trees were a form of nature that represented strength, permanence, and endurance. And the notion of owning large wooded tracts of land signified the basis for economic success for potential colonists. And finally, by including the names of known species, the cartographers illustrated a familiar form of nature within a vast and unfamiliar territory, reinforcing their inclusion as symbolic communication. Well, just as the presence of the trees on the Pennsylvania map conveyed a subliminal message to investors, so did the absence of the native population. Only Europeans were identified. Native Americans were not accounted for in the text, and none of their villages were located on the map, with one exception of an Indian fort that had the notation, Susquehanna Fort Demolished. Well, the cartographer's omission of the native presence, in essence, eradicated their culture from the European consciousness. It transformed Indian lands into their own, and it completely removed the threat of Indian tax attacks from the minds of potential Pennsylvania settlers. For the most part, as Englishmen began making maps of America, the only recognition that they made of the native population was by depicting them in allegorical vignettes in the cartouches, the decorative feature that generally contained the title of the map, um, often the date or the publisher, and so forth. Well, in 1673, Robert Morden and William Berry published a new map of the English plantations in America. The decoration on the cartouche is made up completely with Native Americans, several of whom are holding a banner containing the title of the map. Well, depicting in them, them in this manner subtly suggests they're supporting, they're upholding the fact that um, the geography claimed in this map belonged to England. And also notice that in the title of this map, they were referred to as the English plantations in America, because it's one of the last times you'll see that. By the beginning of the 18th century, America was never referred to again as plantations. It was always referred to as empire. You can begin to see that map makers in the latter part of the 17th century developed a visual vocabulary to establish England's claims to America. But by the early years of the next century, they began to use the decoration to actually justify their inherent right to the land. The cartouche of John Baptist Homon's Map of Virginia, Maryland, and Carolina is a great example. The title is in the very center, contained within a scallop shell. At the top is a well-dressed colonial gentleman surrounded by trunks, barrels or hogsheads, trade goods, and a stone monument containing the English royal coat of arms. Along one side of the title are natives engaged in trade, and along the other side are, um, is a tobacco barn and a shed for drying cod. 
all suggestive of the potential for achieving wealth in America. But there's something else going on here that isn't as obvious at first. And to understand that, you have to be aware of 17th and 18th century philosophical notions about nature. Throughout this period, people subscribed to the widespread belief that all forms of nature fell within a chain of being. Every existing aspect of the universe was assigned a rank that formed a vertical hierarchical chain. The meagerest inanimate objects were positioned at the lowest links, surmounted by differing levels of higher beings that ultimately ascended to God at the top. Mankind ranked highest among earthly living beings. So here you have it. The colonial gentleman and the symbolic stone monument with the coat of arms were placed at the pinnacle of the design. The natives are illustrated beneath the colonial gentleman in what the English perceived was their natural rank, subservient to the Englishman, a lower link in the chain. The English believed they had a right to this land that had been home to a native population because they considered the, the Indians to be an inferior race. Now, beavers were also an important iconographic image for North American maps. Not only was this animal important to the fur trade, but more significantly because cartographers could draw the parallel between the beaver's industrious nature and England's dominant role in mastering the environment and ordering society. Here's the tale of that beaver inset from Herman Mole's map of North America. The beaver symbolized the concept that only the industrious could control their environment. William Byrd II of Westover wrote, Beavers have more of instinct, that half-brother of reason, than any other animal, especially in matters of self-preservation. They perform all their works in the dead of night to avoid discovery and are kept diligently to it by the master beaver, which by his age or strength has gained to himself an authority over the rest. Well, Mole's view of the industrious beavers clearly related to promoting settlement in America. Since industry was known to produce wealth, the beaver represented what could be achieved here. As the 18th century progressed, increased personal wealth in England and Western Europe generated greater markets for natural resources, particularly furs and tobacco. And both the French and the English were aware that America provided them with the greatest potential for meeting those demands. Each country also realized the importance for establishing a foothold in the Ohio Valley. And we talked about this for a lot of you that looked at the DeLille map, the, the beautiful copy of the DeLille map that was laid out, which I'll talk in a minute. Because for France, control of this territory would um, provide them with access to the Ohio River, the only inland passage from Canada to the lower Mississippi, and thereby allow them to dominate the entire interior corridor of North America. Well, the problem for the English was that French possession of that land would have a very detrimental effect on their trade because it would prohibit them from establishing new settlements on the frontier, and it would essentially drive back the ones that were already there and restrict, it would restrict the English colonies to the eastern seaboard. Well, the best medium that both countries had for making their territorial claims was to illustrate them on maps objects that were revered as scientific and authoritative. And we've seen how map makers conveyed messages through nomenclature and decoration, but now we see a new device. 
Each country created new maps that claimed territorial rights based on who was there first. They were essentially creating an historical document. For this map, Carte de la Louisiane, French cartographer Guillaume de Lille researched and recorded the routes taken by earlier French explorers, such as La Salle and De Soto, as well as more recent explorations. But recording these extensive French journeys had the effect of asserting France's authority by documenting their longstanding presence in the area. De Lille also used France's position to restrict the English colonies to the seaboard, as I mentioned. Um, they were all contained, well you can't see that on this detail, they were all contained to the east of the Appalachian Mountains. And if that wasn't bad enough, he also claimed Carolina for the French, noting that it had originally been discovered by the French and um, that they were the first to settle there. So, two years later, in 1720, English mapmaker Herman Mole published a map to challenge those boundary lines assigned by DeLille, and he called it a new uh, map a new map of the north parts of America claimed by France. Well, on his map, Mole adopted DeLille's tactic of documenting ownership by virtue of these early explorations and stated that the English claim the property of Carolina as part of Cabot's discoveries, who set out from Bristol in 1498. But what the English realized that they needed was not a map that was created in defense of the English of the French claims, but they needed a map that um, very clearly outlined from their own perspective what their um, boundaries were. So Henry Popple made his map in 1733 to use just that, and he used a device that I haven't mentioned so far. He made his map so large that it stops you in your tracks. He enlarged the scale so much that it took 20 sheets of elephant folio paper pasted together to illustrate the geography. And a piece of elephant, for you, you um, rare book school students, you know that a piece of elephant folio paper is about this big. So when this map is completely assembled, as our copy is that you see on the screen, it measures eight feet by eight feet. And believe me, it'll grab your attention. Well, Popple's map was titled a map of the English empire in America with the French and Spanish settlements adjacent. <laughs> so notice the word settlements. <clears throat> and one entire sheet, <coughs> which is this one you see on the screen, was given over to the cartouche alone. Excuse me. <coughs> Went down the wrong way. Popple even hired <coughs> a more experienced engraver to engrave that sheet than, than the one who engraved the geography. <coughs> mm. Here, Native Americans flank each side of the title, which may or may not be an engraved stone tablet. The Indian to the left points to the title as if to declare its correctness, and the one on the right acknowledges the thriving British commercial activity taking place along the shore, shoreline. Well, their gestures can be construed as nothing other than supportive of the fact that you know, the English presence in America. <coughs> now, England's perception of her American empire is also alluded to in the allegorical details above the title. The figure of a Native American with her foot on an alligator was frequently used to represent America, as you can see from this Darby porcelain figure from Colonial Williamsburg's collections on the left 
and another Mycin one on the right. The native's other foot rests on a human head pierced with an arrow. Well, it took a while to figure this one out. One of our volunteers who was looking at this map with, with me when I installed the map exhibit that we have up in Williamsburg looked at that and suggested that because of the beard and all that maybe this represented a pirate. I thought, well, maybe, until I looked more closely at this grouping and noticed the monkeys. And all of a sudden, I realized that while the head pierced with an arrow probably wasn't a pirate per se, it may have been placed there as a symbol of the Spanish Empire because throughout the 18th century, the English used the image of the monkey to illustrate the French. <clears throat> My Lord, um, English boarding school education or the Frenchified young lady shows a skinny French dancing master teaching a young woman to dance. Well, her actions are mimicked by a puppy suggestive of the young girl and the dancing master was represented by the monkey holding a toy sword and stick. My Lord Tiptoe, just arrived from monkey land, is an English satire that pokes fun at the effeminate French fashions at the time. Charlestonian Peter Manigo, who visited France in 1753, wrote home commenting on the extravagance of French dress, noting, all the concerns of life seem to be centered in dress, and a man that goes abroad at all must murder the whole morning in qualifying himself to look like a monkey in the afternoon. <laughs> Well, we probably have, we have a certain over 150 uh, prints in the collection that use the monkey to illustrate the French or to mock the French. Now, if you look closely at the cartouche of George, George Wilde's map of North America, made about four years before Popple's map, you'll see another head with an arrow through it. Well, once I noticed this, I began to see these heads in other maps. Here's a map of South America in our collection and a detail of the head. And this is a detail of a map in the collections of the Clements Library at the University of Michigan. And here again, you see actually she's sitting on the alligator here, but the head is at the foot of the Native American. And I think um, these heads might further, these heads that you see here might further support the idea that the one on Popple's map was intended to represent the Spanish because the source for these heads, the source for the design for these, uh, design for these, looks to me anyway, to have been borrowed from an engraving by Theodore de Bry that depicted, the, the purpose of his, his engraving was to depict the brutal treatment of the natives by the Spanish. And, and here the de Bry detail is on the right. Anyway, this is sort of a more recent obsession of mine and I'm continuing to work on this one right now. Well, by the middle of the 18th century, the British Crown realized that war with France was inevitable. So the Board of Trade um, requested that each of the colonial governors provide new and accurate surveys of each of their colonies. In Virginia, Acting Governor Lewis Burrell commissioned Joshua Fry and Peter Jefferson to prepare a map of this colony. Well, Fry had taught mathematics at the College of William and Mary, and I don't need to tell anybody in this uh, room who Peter Jefferson was. Um, but both of these men had firsthand experience surveying large tracts of land in Virginia, and their map became the one that was most widely used for the next half a century. And you saw one of the most important copies of that map on the tables in there. That was one of the four known copies of the first date of that map. It's extremely rare and absolutely unobtainable today. 
Um, once Brian Jefferson's information was received by the Board of Trade, they commissioned the cartographer, Thomas Jeffries, to create an overall draft of the map based on all of the surveys that they sent. This is Jeffries' trade card that you see, and I use this because Jeffries, who was geographer to the king, ran somewhat of an atypical operation. Um, Jeffries was, in addition to being a map maker, was also an outstanding engraver and a publisher. Usually several hands were involved in producing maps. The surveyor, the cartographer who prepared the manuscript map, the um, engraver who engraved the image on the copper plate, the printer, and the publisher. Well, Jeffries could do it all. Um, he recognized the importance of Brian Jefferson's map and so he hired a well-known artist to come up with a design that reflected Virginia's tobacco-based economy. And rather than, engra than engra engrave the cartouche himself, as he did with the rest of the map, he also hired a separate engraver to, et to engrave that detail. The scene illustrates a Virginia planter on his wharf. Um, the vast waterways of the Chesapeake were critical to the tobacco trade because ships could sail directly to each plantation, allowing the planters to negotiate directly with each of the ship captains. But most importantly, by being able to navigate so far inland, planters were, were spared the expense of transporting their crops over land. Well, not only was land transportation more expensive, but the damage, you know, when they're traveling with those hogsheads of tobacco over land, it shakes those hogsheads and the, the quality of the tobacco is not nearly as good as um, it would be if you could load it directly on the boat. Well, as we've seen in a lot of those earlier cartouches, the placement of the, sim of the figures is symbolic. The planter is the only one being served a drink, the one being served a drink in a wine glass, which is probably port, is the only one seated. The standing man in the foreground is presumably the ship captain. And there are all the scantily clothed laborers working in the background that represent the large labor force. And for the most part, their backs are to the viewer. Um, just like the Native Americans we saw in the earlier maps, these figures are clearly subservient to the Englishmen. And look at the actual size of the figure who's serving port to the planner. Although it's likely that he's a young boy, he's definitely much smaller in scale than the seated planter. Well, finally, and most interesting to me, is the rendering of the structure in the background. Because no shed or warehouse on a wharf in Virginia in the 18th century would have been constructed out of stone block. It would certainly have been made of wood, but the material properties of stone created a sense of solidity and permanence that are not associated with wood. The stone structure provided a subtle device to, in to indicate England's secure position over both the land and their imported labor force. And the properties of stone are going to be, is going to be something that you see throughout um, the third quarter of the 18th century. Here is another map. Are these, are these in focus? Could you, could you work on that focus a little bit? I, it's hard for me to see because they're in focus up here. But, um, hmm. Thanks, thanks. Um, here again, the properties of stone were used as a device to convey similar messages in cartouches like this. William Gerhard de Brahms, map of South Carolina and part of Georgia, made in 1757, has a design that reflects 
that region's profitable, profitable indigo trade. The most dominant feature is an imposing stone tablet containing the title and the imprint. Here, England's claims were essentially etched in stone. The large size of the monument suggests dominance, and the fact that vegetation's already begun to grow around it suggests longevity and permanence. Now, the scene to the side in the background illustrates slaves processing indigo into dyeing cubes for shipment. There are no Englishmen pictured in this scene, only slaves, whose presence is secondary to the monument, to what represents English control of the land. Um, this is the cartouche of a map that you all saw in the Jeffreys Atlas out there. This is the one that he did, published of New England. And I show this just to show you here. And this, this is the scene of the um, pilgrims landing at Plymouth. And the stone element here is right there. It's, again, Plymouth etched in stone in the lower right. One of the primary reasons for making maps during the colonial period was to resolve boundary disputes. And as you all know, a number of the English colonies in America were established through the monarchs granting large tracts of land to their favorites. Well, one of the first things that these recipients of these large proprietary grants did was to commission maps so that they could promote settlement on their lands. And occasionally, more than occasionally, errors were made on these maps. Sometimes it was because of careless wording of the charters, and sometimes it was just because they had a general lack of knowledge about the geography. For example, in 1635, only shortly after the Calverts had been granted Maryland, Lord Baltimore commissioned this map to try to promote settlement to his new colony. The problem was that the mapmaker placed his boundary where he thought the 40th degree of north latitude was at the head of the Chesapeake Bay. And by the way, you'll notice in this map, as in many of the earlier ones, that north is placed to the right rather than at the top. So some of these earlier maps of the Chesapeake are a little bit disorienting at first. Um, but by the time that a new revised map was printed, 36 years later, that he had realized the mistake. So what he did was just move that line northward, which was important. Well, let me go back here so you can see that. He moved that line northward, which is important because it gave him access to the Susquehanna River. And he just added that couple little rows of drove trees to, dis to clever cleverly disguise the earlier mistake. So you know, he was hoping that nobody would ever notice that there was this little, there was this little shift in his, his northern boundary. Well, when William Penn received his grant for Pennsylvania in 1681, one of the first things that he did was to contest every single one of the borders with, um, between his colony and Maryland. And one of the issues... Oh, gosh, I've got this. One of the issues was whether the westward line should be at the 40th degree of latitude as accurately surveyed or where it was thought to have been when Baltimore received his grant and published that first map. And the Penn family used Baltimore's flawed map as evidence to illustrate that the Pennsylvania boundary should actually be much farther south. Well, after over 80 years of litigation and numerous maps produced to, um, to, to illustrate each of the various positions here. The Pens and the Calverts came to an agreement on the position of the line, but they concluded that there were no colonial surveyors that were actually capable of running this line. So they solicited 
the most knowledgeable members of the international scientific community for recommendations on how to proceed, and they finally commissioned English astronomers Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon to run the line. Well, Mason and Dixon arrived in America with very sophisticated scientific equipment that allowed them to base their entire survey on astronomical observations. And after spending almost five years running the line, just imagine that, five years out running the line between Pennsylvania and Maryland, Dixon prepared his manuscript draft of the survey, and this is that original drawing which is currently on loan to Colonial Williamsburg. Well, as you can see, this map looks quite different from any other map that you've seen. Like other maps, roads, rivers, streams, and other landmarks are shown, but on this map you really don't know where you are. You don't know where those roads or rivers came from or where they lead. It also lacks many of the rich visual components that we've seen on some of the other maps. Instead, this map visually reflects the single-minded determination that these two men shared for their assignment to scientifically determine the precise dividing line between the two colonies that had been in dispute for so many decades. We'll talk about symbolism buried in all of these maps. I mean, 100 years later, this map, the most important boundary survey made during the colonial period, became an imaginary line for the division between the North and the South and has come to represent one of the most significant symbols in American history. Well, when Mason and Dixon began their survey, England and other European nations had been mapping America for over a century and a half. The same year that they began that survey, Great Britain acquired Canada, Florida, and the territory east of the Mississippi at the Treaty of Paris that ended the French and Indian War. In the following year, George III, uh, the Privy Council recommended to George III that new surveys be taken of all of those newly acquired lands. So over the next decade, geographical knowledge was really substantially improved, which would be a very important factor in, um, that would come to play in the next effort to gain control in America, and that was the American Revolution. Now, this is, this is a map of the first battle of the Revolution, the skirmish at Lexington and Concord. And following the Boston Tea Party, the British government took a hard line with the Massachusetts provincials by fortifying the city with additional troops. And General Thomas Gage learned that the Massachusetts Provincial Congress had stored a significant amount of their ammunition and conquered. And so on April 19, 1775, he dispatched a corps of grenadiers and light infantry to go and destroy the military stores there. Well, the Boston Patriots found out and dispatched Paul Revere and William Dawes to Lexington to alert the local militia. Well, a little aside here. About um, two years ago, there was a great sale at Christie's, and I was in the auction house, and I looked at, at an object on the wall, and it was Paul Revere's actual bill for the ride. Now, I had, thought, I had always thought this was the great patriotic decision here. He not only billed for his time, he built in his lodging and his food, but he billed for his horse's lodging and food and time. <laughs> But anyway, militarily, this battle was insignificant, but it proved to be psychologically important to the provincials. And the British did accomplish their mission by destroying the Patriot ammunition and conquered, but the Americans proved to be more competent than the British expected. 
Look at this map and then look at this one. Only two months had elapsed before the second confrontation took place, the battle at Bunkers Hill, or more accurately, Breed's Hill. Well, this map looks nothing like the whimsical depiction of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. If the styles of these maps are any indication, the British had very quickly begun to take the Americans more seriously. This map was designed with an overlay to paste over the section of the map where the action occurred. So the overlay shows the deployment of the British troops and their maneuvers at the first phase of the battle, and you lift that up, and underneath is the final position. Now, this may not look like it, but this is one of the real gems in Colonial Williamsburg's collection. When General George Washington realized that Cornwallis was planning to launch a campaign in Virginia, he dispatched the Marquis de Lafayette and 1,200 light infantry to the colony. And Lafayette, from the time he came to America, was accompanied by a group of aides that he actually brought here with them. And one of those was a topographical engineer named Michael or Michel Capitaine. And the Capitaine's entire job here was just to make detailed um, plans of all of Lafayette's campaigns. Well, Lafayette was well aware that um, his army was no match for Cornwallis. And so he devised a strategy to engage the British general in a series of skirmishes rather than by direct confrontation. This map carefully detailed Lafayette's strategy. It was drawn by Capitaine, and we are absolutely confident that this is the actual map that they unfolded every day and marked all of the troop positions throughout the entire Virginia campaign. And um, I'll tell you another quick little aside. Uh, this map is the one map that we did not allow to travel when uh, we put this show on the road. And it's, it's very brown and, and very brittle. And I asked the conservator if she might not clean it up just a little bit um, for the show. And she did some work on it. She came back to me and she said, you know, we can't do that. It, this, is, this is tracing paper. And I said, well, I didn't know they had tracing paper in the 18th century. And she said, yes. What they did was they took the paper and they painted it with walnut oil to make it transparent. And then they put it over the French edition of the Fry Jefferson map just so they could get the courses of the rivers and the geography and all of the area in between was blank and they could use that to outline all the troop movements. So while it's clear that maps were needed to wage campaigns and record battles, military maps were also used as powerful tools for propaganda. This French map shows a dramatic, somewhat stylized version of the important role that the French Navy played in the American victory at Yorktown. <laughs> if you look at the map, the positions under Washington, Lafayette, and Rochambeau are all located on the land, but the most dramatic feature is the French fleet positioned at the mouth of the Chesapeake. This map was designed for the French market to illustrate and maybe even enhance the French position. It was obvious to any Frenchman at home that Corn, who was curious about what was going on that Cornwallis could neither receive reinforcements or escape. And um, French, French pride in the assistance that they gave the Americans can also be seen in this view of their contributions to the Battle of Yorktown. This is their version of the French advance on Cornwallis's redoubts. Well, as soon as the surrender flag was raised, Washington dispatched his engineer, who was a man named Sebastian Bauman, to survey the battlefield. And after he did that, the draft was sent to Philadelphia to be engraved. 
And Bauman provided all of the relevant military information. But as you can imagine by now, the most interesting thing about this map to me is the artistic composition. This map is subtly yet powerfully moving, and it's probably my favorite map in the whole of all of the maps in the collection. Yorktown, Gloucester Point, and all of the troop positions are confined to the top half of the map. The, the lower half is dominated by the explanation of the locations that are all depicted in the top portion. And the kidney shape of that scrollwork cartouche surrounding the explanation with the flags and banners that thrust up, upward from both sides force the viewer's eye to the center of the map, which is unembellished, it's unobstructed, yet it delivers, delivers a powerful message. The whole composition was created to highlight the tiny inscription in the center that reads, the field where the British laid down their arms. I mean, it's almost as if the, this map was designed with a heart and soul. Well, the first map to illustrate the American flag was published as soon as the Treaty of Paris was signed. And this allegorical cartouche um, symbolizes peace in America. George Washington stands beside liberty, and Benjamin Franklin's writing the Treaty of Paris. He's supported by Justice and Minerva, the goddess of wisdom and war. After 1783, the entire process and expense of creating new maps shifted to this side of the Atlantic. Once the United States gained its independence, a system for mapping the individual states had to be developed. And at first, there were few state governments that were able to fund surveys and publish new maps of their counties and, and all of their new boundaries. So with the exception of New York, the first individual state maps were compiled and published separately. It wasn't until about 1840 that government agencies and private com companies established ambitious mapping programs in America. And these new maps from the 1840s are much more accurate than the ones we've been looking at today. But for me, they lack much of the visual and psychological appeal of the early maps of America. So the next time that you look at a 17th or 18th century map, look at what it tells you about the geography, but more importantly, look at the iconography on them and realize that these maps tell the story of the hopes and the aspirations of the foreign powers competing in America. After the revolution, the primary European motivations for mapping the American colonies, acquiring and controlling land, facilitating trade and commerce, and planning military strategy, none of these were longer, any longer relevant. Today for us, though, they provide powerful tools for understanding the road to American independence. Thank you. join our speaker for Richmond's in the gallery behind.